So we're nearing the end of uh, this series that we've been working on through the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, People of the Gospel. This series uh, began when Pastor Paul introduced us to Bible Paul, who was in prison in Rome in AD 63, awaiting either release or execution. I don't mean to spoil the story, but he was not released. But while there, he received a gift, a financial gift from a group of believers that he had established in Philippi, the leading city of Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. Now, the gift came in spite of the fact that that church was experiencing persecution and the resulting economic hardships. And so he wrote, in a sense, a thank you note uh, to them, reminding his friends of who they are in Christ, of their call to live in a manner worthy of him. He told them again and again, they are Christ's people. They are now and always Christ's people. And so they need to demonstrate it in how they live, no matter what was going to happen. Then we heard Pastor Lou explain how the Apostle Paul said that his own life in prison actually served to advance the gospel due to his being given grace to faithfully live out the good news, no matter what happened. Then our Paul came back and went on to outline what Bible Paul's description of the believers in Philippi, whose way of life was also advancing the gospel in the way they were dealing and handling with the opposition, with selfless Christ-like love, in spite of being, their being subject to what our Paul called the selfish gene. And last week, Liz Joyle explained how the Apostle Paul's description of how we are to live in this way today, particularly in our rejecting the temptation to grumble. Now, as I thought about the word grumble last week, the Bible word in the Old Testament in an older translation was murmur, murmur. The people of God murmured against Moses and against God. And I'd like to just try that and just get the, get the grumbling out of our system. So just together, let's just say the word murmur, murmur, murmur. Try it. Murmur, 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 murmur. See, it kind of works, you know. It's kind of murmur, murmur, murmur. It's kind of like what people think about those who live in Massachusetts, that our constant attitude is this. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, it's not good to live that way, to grumble. Instead, we're to hold firm to the word of life that brings us encouragement and truth, and through the struggle to be glad and to rejoice. And so today, we're going to begin by picking up on that theme of rejoicing in Philippians chapter 3, when Paul says again in verse 1, and he will say it again in chapter 4, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Yeah, rejoicing in the Lord as we're being invited to do today is a safeguard to your faith. That's why you're here, I hope, week after week to be guarded in your faith. And you practice this rejoicing in the Lord on a daily basis no matter what happens because grumbling is not a safeguard. Now, in what follows, we'll get at what I think is the handle that we need to grab onto for how to really live like this, joyfully, in spite of that selfish gene that's part of us and the selfish culture in which we live and in the face of no matter what is going to happen to us. It has something and everything to do with who we are in Christ, a central theme of this letter, and how we are to live on purpose for Christ in everything we do, becoming people who have and who live with what I'll call gospel purpose. 
So as a further introduction to this part of Paul's letter, this section of what it means to be the gospel community, the worship team will lead us once again in a song that we introduced two weeks ago about who God says, I am and you are if we are in him.
Oh, that was wonderful. That is wonderful. Thank you so much. Isn't that amazing? One, two, three, four of them produce a sound like that. And yeah, 12, 13, 14, 15. Just thank you, Lord. Thank you for coming. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit. Well, we just sang a great song. I am a child of God. Yes, I am. I'm chosen, not forsaken. God is for me, not against me. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. I am who he says I am. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Come on. Well, the question is, do we live that way? That's the question we want to address. Do we live that way? Do we live like gospel people? Do we live like good news people? That's what that word literally means. Do we live as if there's good news? I'm not talking about a pasty smile or some kind of cheesy thing that we present, but a real honest kind of sense that we believe that at the base of everything in life, no matter what happens, that there's a gospel and that we're in it. We're in it because of Jesus, because of what he's done for us. Do we believe that? Well, the answer to that question really, I think, will depend upon what is our real purpose for living. Why do you think you're here? And what is it that's the aims of your life? That will depend on whether you live as if all that stuff was true. I remember having a conversation with some high schoolers who were getting really stressed about their grades, and I remember what that's like. And, you know, I still get stressed about stuff. I occasionally stress about doing this kind of thing with you people. But in any event, they were kind of going on and on about, you know, their grades. And so I finally said, well, well what happens? Uh, why is it that you need to get great grades? Well, they said, because we don't get great grades, then maybe we won't be able to get into that next school, whatever it is. Well, what if you don't get into that next school? What's going to happen? Well, then won't be able to get that good job. Well, what if you don't get the good job? Well, then maybe I'm not going to get that special person in my life. And what if you don't get the special person in your life? Well, then maybe I'm not going to get the, the house or the, the, the apartment or the condo that I'm looking for. Well, what happens if you don't get that? Well, then I'm going to live in some kind of rat-infested rat place. And what happens if that? Well, then I don't know what's going to happen. And it kind of eventually kind of petered out as we began to realize that for them as well as for me, some of the purposes that we're living for are just kind of like, not today, but for the next thing. You know, it's kind of like, I got to do this in order to make that happen. And then once that arrives, I got to make that happen. And it's just an endless stream until maybe you end up at my age and you kind of say to yourself, what have I been living for? I got some of that stuff. I didn't get some of that stuff. There were some ups and downs, but what's it all about? Climbing the ladder to try to please other people like parents or like people you love or like boss or whatever. What's it for? And you get all stressed about it. And running the rat race to satisfy yourself, some kind of a dream that I have about what I'm supposed to do, what's that all about? To what end? And you end up being wiped out. Well, so in the third chapter of this letter to the Christians in Philippi, Paul indicates that he's aware of what it's like to live for those kind of purposes. In fact, he's done that life. And he's also giving us a picture of what it looks like to get out of that kind of life and get into a life that's really a life indeed. So open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3. If you want to look at the one that's in the seats there, it's on page 831. And Lord, I pray that you would come and just help us to hear the word, the word of God for everybody, but then a particular word for each of us. I pray that, that we'd listen carefully until we hear you speaking to us and telling us something we need to know. So Paul once climbed the cultural ladder of his day to please others in his religious community. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. 
And it begins with some really pretty powerful language. This is some of the most negative language Paul uses. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Now, he's so upset about this because he used to be one of these people, as we'll see. Because now verse 3 says he's different. He says, we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, put no confidence in the flesh. But then he goes back to what was previous. I myself have reasons for such confidence, the confidence that comes from one's flesh, and we'll explain that. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, and as for zeal, persecuting the church, and as for righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. Now we would say Paul was a super Jew. He was a super Jew. Now remember the context here, friends, by the way, is that until we get to places like Philippi, everybody who was following Jesus was Jews. There's no place for anti-Semitism in the gospel, right? But he was trying to be a, a super Jew, to be uh, the Israelite of all people of Israel. He believed and even gloried in his having been circumcised as an eight-year-old child on the correct day. He was one of the special tribes of Israel. He was an exacting keeper of God's law as one of the Pharisees. And again, we get negative pictures of the Pharisees in their tangling with Jesus, but they were the good people. They were the Jews who were trying to keep the law in the midst of a culture that was trying to smash them, as cultures all over the world are trying to smash the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he was at the pinnacle of Jewish life then because he was a persecutor of the church, that wayward sect of Jews who believed that the Messiah had come in Jesus of Nazareth of all places. So Paul's life was completely defined about how he stacked up to the Jews of his day. He was up here and they were down there. He wanted to be the best Israelite he could be, the perfect Jew to impress. Everything he did, he did really not so much for God, but for those others in order to impress them and to gain confidence in himself. So this is one of the three ways that you could choose to live your life to live for others and constantly evaluate yourself on how they think you're doing. How am I doing, you say? If not allowed, inside you're saying that all the time. That can be true if you're trying to live up to your parents' expectations or that of your boss or of somebody that you love. It can be true if you're competing against other people in business, in sports, in academics, in career. Your life can be built around other people, lived relative to them, or really lived for their sake. I realized after a while that I was doing some of the stuff I did in a church that I served to please my dad, who is an atheist. Is that crazy or what? But that's what I was doing, to please the man, to please the man of my life. In fact, that can be particularly true of parents who live for their children who sacrifice themselves so that their children will succeed, so that they'll have a happy life and a wonderful life. A better life than we have is sort of the American dream. And that's, I suppose, the way it is, but there's a problem if you find yourself getting really annoyed that they're not doing what you planned for them. That's what I'm talking about. 
You're living for them, not for God. And you get mad. And you get disappointed. Paul shows that it's possible to be living for others even in your spiritual life, trying to impress or bless others by your faith. But when your life is essentially all about this, about pleasing others, it is falling way short of life. And in fact, it's saturated with a very ugly virtue, pride, pride. Some of us here in this room feel like we've succeeded. We succeeded in life and we succeeded in the life in Christ like Paul did once. We're proud of ourselves and our accomplishments, our essential goodness. And see, some of that being proud of yourself, okay, but being proud of your essential goodness, yips, a little scary. We too have confidence in the flesh, which is not your physical body. I don't have confidence in this thing, I gotta tell you. But in ourselves when compared with others. And so, our life is grounded in pride, the one attribute that keeps us from real life. And it normally is saturated with anxiety. I remember when I was in school, there was a lot of anxiety about trying to keep up this level of attainment. I was a good student, but it was like I had this level that I had to keep up to kind of keep the people back at home happy with what was going on, keep myself happy, and so on. In fact, a lot of people who deal with depression and anxiety, a lot of young people are people who are successful. They're up here. They're trying to impress. Some of us feel like we've succeeded. Proverbs 16 says, pride goes before destruction in this life and in the life to come. Others of us feel like we've failed. When we compare with other people, we look around and we say, I'm a total failure. And we've had people who've told us that lie as well. You're a failure. You're never going to amount to anything. That's a big lie if there's a God in your life. Constantly running ourselves down, finding ourselves wanting, a little confidence in ourselves. But we keep on trying to impress, only to feel like we failed once again. And you know, the weird thing is, we're also afflicted by pride, negative pride, thinking that we're the worst of all people, that we're never going to amount to anything, and that life will surely pass us by, all because we're living for other people to impress them. So this is one of Paul's three options for a way of life. You can live your life for other people. Your purpose is to live for them. It's what we would call the impressive life. But Paul also has lived another way of life that he describes actually further on in this chapter. People who are running the rat race to please the self, and he once lived this way too. He says, verse 18, as I've often told you before and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. That was Paul, literally an enemy of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. So far from living, uh, giving themselves to others as Paul once thought he was doing, these lives are lived only in regard to the self, to satisfy the self, to build what one writer calls the kingdom of self. It's not the impressive life, it's the impulsive life. Living to yourself, acting and doing what you want, where you want, and how you want it. Building a life around the self. And though we may think we're living for others or even for God, as Paul once thought he was doing, if we take a closer look at our real motivations, we realize that we're doing this all for self. 
Our minds are really set on earthly things, who we are, what we desire, and even what we want from God. You know, the temptation that we have to kind of go from church to church to get the buzz or whatever it is that we want that they think they're going to offer to us, that can be this, living not for God, but living for self, for what you're going to get out of something spiritually. We're actually bowing to the God of consumption, grounded in the gut, in the stomach, as Paul says, in what we consume, either stuff or experiences or achievements. And so Paul lived this impulsive life when he kind of departed from his once impressive life as a Jew and went on a personal crusade to try to destroy these followers of Jesus. His life revolved around himself. He traveled to and fro, thrashing people, finding Christians, throwing them out. He participated in the stoning of the deacon Stephen. It was a cruel obsession. It was basically the self run wild, and some of us know what it's like to live this way. When our little obsessions and addictions and things that we like to do begin to get out of control and we can't control ourselves, living for self over and over and over again. We ask ourselves, what do we want? What do we need? What are we going to do? And then we do it, whether it's something good like helping others or doing something for God or something not good like fueling an addiction or a desire. This is why I went to the college I went to, because I was so anxious about my studies, I said, I can't stand another minute of it. So I chose a college that was going to be fun, and man, it was a great time, but it was not a great time, because I spiraled, and it was then that Jesus said, okay, pal, you've done life one way, now you're living life for yourself. Is this working for you? And the answer was no. The answer was no, and he had some help, as we're going to see. And just like that other way of life, the impressive life, this way of life, the impulsive life, living for the purpose of self-actualization or self-realization, it ultimately leads to death as well. Paul says it. Their destiny is destruction. Paul rejected these two ways of life, the impressive life, the impulsive life, living for others and living for self. Why? Well, in one sense... There was a better way of life. The lives that he had lived could not compare with the third kind of life he shows that we can live. Living for God in what I'll call the improving life. Let's go back to verse 7. Whatever were gains to me in that other way of living, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You see, Paul realized that his prior impressive life, as well as his impulsive life of defending the faith, were garbage when compared with the improving life. Garbage. That's an astounding thing for a Jewish believer to be saying, that all the traditions that he'd observed compared to Christ were like garbage. They weren't garbage in and of themselves, but when compared to Jesus, they were. They were like eating trash. Or as he was given an opportunity to enter into a banquet with God, the life which God in Jesus Christ would occupy first place in this man's life. Now, that was a huge sacrifice 
to his former way of life. Why? Because whatever confidence he had in his former living, the confidence of either being better than others, the confidence in doing what he wanted, thinking he was doing it for God, whatever right standing he had in the eyes of others or even in his own self-concept, it was eclipsed by the righteousness that he was experiencing that came to him through Christ. He gained confidence in life, a real right standing with God by faith as his life came under the control of and in the service of Jesus Christ. See, part of that sin gene that we've heard mentioned before dictates that there are two ways to live your life, and our culture supports this entirely. Our culture tells us either you're to live for yourself, whole ton of advertising, everything you see popping up in your screen, live for yourself, buy it, master the moment, do it, whatever you want. The one real love in your life is the love for yourself. Pursue it, do it. That's part of the sin gene. The other part of the sin gene is a little nicer. Live for others. Oh yeah, be a great person. Give to this charity. Do some good works and so on. Impress other people. Impress yourself. That's the other thing our culture tells us. Inflicted, afflicted as it is by the sin gene. But you'll never be secure that way. Never, never, ever. Because you'll never have done enough to please whoever the audience is. You'll never do enough to satisfy the desires that you have in your heart because you know what those desires do? As you satisfy them and satisfy them, they grow and they grow and they grow. Any of us who are addicted, we know what that's like. Addicted to experience, addicted to a substance, addicted to ourselves. We just never can get enough. It's like more, 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 pour it on, pour it on. Total bondage. But once you live for God, once you give your life to God and say, okay, pal, whatever you want, I'm doing it. Then, then it's different. That sin gene begins to shrink. You begin to look at that stuff and you begin to laugh at the things that you're told to do. You begin to say, what the heck is that? Since the self will give room for God, who provides a right standing and a security that no amount of pressing or impulsing can ever get us. Once Paul found Jesus and built his life around Jesus' love and truth and his plan for real life, he no longer needed to impress those people since it appeared as if God accepted him just as he was, wretched though he was, because of the impressiveness of Jesus, you see. And he no longer had to satisfy his impulses since his deepest needs were being met once he was found in the ample love of Jesus Christ. And so in this new life, Paul began to live not by impressing, not by impulsing, not to live for others, not to live for self, but he began to live for God, for what we'll call here gospel purpose. People who are truly in Christ, the gospel community, we live with gospel purpose. And Paul describes this purpose in verses 10 and 11. I'm going to read it to you. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection, participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Now that verse um, is one that I know. Memory is not a great thing for me, um, particularly connecting verses with passages. I'm really glad for the book of the Hebrews where the writer says, Somewhere, somebody has written, and then he quotes scripture. That gives me a little encouragement, okay? 
But this is a verse that I know well. Because this is what some people call my life verse. This is the verse that defines my life. It's what I'll call my purpose verse. Or maybe if I want to be cute, I'll call it my perp verse. <laughs> I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Now, I've known Christ for 40-some years, but I want to know Christ. I want to know Him more. I want to know Him, and that, that, that know there is not just a casual thing. It's not here or even here. It's a whole life thing. It's the knowledge that a husband and wife are granted to have to each other. It's that intimate. It's that deep. It's that profound. It's that lifelong. I want to know Him deeply. I want to know Him intimately. I want to know the power is resurrection. I want to know His victory over my sin and death. And as I came to know Christ, I began to kind of see some improvements in my life from the inside out. I, I began to feel that sin gene starting to kind of shrink a little bit. And participation in his sufferings. Now this, as I early on in my life in Christ saw this, this was kind of like, I don't know as I want that. Because my life had been built around trying to protect myself from pain and all the kind of fuel that made myself feel happy and so on. But now... I've seen that I need to be accepting suffering willingly for the purpose of the gospel, the good news accepted and shared. You see, because of following Jesus, in a sense, I, I lost my purpose in life. I had a purpose of what I was going to do for myself. I lost my career that I was planning for. I lost my family because there's nobody else in my family who's following Jesus. I lost many of my friends. Was it worth it? Oh, sure. Was it painful? Oh, sure. And in so doing, I became like him in his death. I was willing to die to that stuff, and I'm, I'm still on that kind of participation in his sufferings. Why? Because I'm experiencing an improving life. Because I have a purpose of the gospel, finding that there really was no better way to live than to live for God and for the purposes of receiving the gospel and communicating the gospel and demonstrating the power of the gospel. And for the future... That next part of the verse, for one who had spent his whole life up until then in bondage to the fear of death, I will somehow attain the resurrection from the dead. That's my hope, new life to come, based on what I know of him and his resurrection and the new and improving life that I'm beginning to experience today. Note, I'm describing it not as the improved life. It's the improving life. It's not done. This kind of life, living with gospel purpose, will take your whole life, one day at a time, one step by one step. That's why this church is very appropriately called what? The journey. Well, none of us have arrived. We're on a journey with God. Look at verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this. I've already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You've heard about marrying up? I married up. When I married my wife, I married way up. I got to tell you, and we see that right now. Oh my God, did I marry up. But I'll tell you, in living for Christ, I'm living up. And you can too. He will help you 
He's going to help you to do this. It's not something you have to attain to. He's going to be aside you and beside you and underneath you and before you and over you and under you, shepherding you along the way. And whatever purpose it is that God has given to you, He will make it possible. He will make it come to pass. Mine is described again in these verses. Let's recite them again. Together, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and participation in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Yeah, that's my life purpose. But there are tons of verses in the Bible that can give you a sense God will speak to you and say, that's why you're here. That's why you're here. Take these verses. In fact, I have here down at my feet, I have a sheet with 71 of them, 71 suggestions for what we might call a gospel purpose. Anyone at which of you could encourage you to stop living for others, just for others, or for yourself, but to begin living for God and for the purposes of His gospel. To find your impressing and your impulsing swallowed up in the improving life with God and for God in this world. If you want a copy, they'll be waiting for you here up front. Living with gospel purpose can take many forms, 71, 71,000 forms, each unique to each one of us here. And friends, we don't do this all by ourselves. We do it better together, and that's why we're here. That's why we have a church family. That's why we're involved in things like life groups, because we want to encourage each other to pursue this life, living for God, and and to begin to put to death living for self and living for others alone, but to live for God. Look at verse 17. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. That's the great thing about this particular congregation is we got people of all ages here, and you can look to somebody either younger than you, older than you, or alongside of you who's living a life that you think is lived for God, and you can draw near to them and say, can you, can you mentor me? Can you show me what it's like to live this way? I don't get it. I'd like to live like you. And they'll say, well, you don't want to live like me. You want to live like God wants you to live. But maybe I can share with you some of the things I've learned uh, along the way. Be looking for some of those people who live by gospel purposes and whose lives seem to be in this improving mode. But wait, wait, there's even more. There's even more. Don't forget, there's a great coda at the end of your life if it's lived for God. Unlike those other two lives that we described that have a really bad ending, The third will end up very well indeed. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Amen. There's something coming that we can't even imagine. The Bible gives us pictures of it, but oh my gosh, what it'll be like. So it seems as if Paul is presenting us with three basic choices you have today in how you live your life, each with its particular costs and consequences. You can live for others, and so live with the pride or the negative pride that goes along with it, and it'll make it very hard for you to find the real God and the source of real life. Or you can live up for yourself, end up equally destroyed by your own inventions, obsessions, and addictions. Or you can live for God. You can live for a gospel purpose. 
and receive an improving life that goes deeper and further than you ever imagined and then one day will launch into a life that will literally blow your mind. And so today, very shortly, we have an opportunity to affirm that choice as we get out of our seats and come forward to receive Holy Communion. Now, what we do now is called Holy Communion on purpose, on gospel purpose. It's holy, which simply means it's set apart. You don't do this any other place but here. A time set apart for people who have been set apart by God and for God, who is indeed set apart himself in terms of his extraordinary truthfulness and love and sacrifice for us. And God knows the truth that every one of us in this room have sinned in many ways. We've all fallen short of the way of life he desires us to live. And left to ourselves, we would end up in a place of real destruction. The truth is that we've indeed chosen and choose again and again to live for self and to live for others rather than for him. But in terms of love, he chose to take that destruction upon himself on our behalf in the person of Jesus, God on earth as a human who suffered and died on the cross on a Friday in that place of destruction that should have been ours. And then on a Sunday, he rose from the dead and eventually ascended to resume his place in the Godhead and to prepare a place for those who have given themselves to him and intend to lead their lives for him. And so as a sign of his truth, love, and sacrifice, as Scripture tells us, on the night before he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. When he'd given thanks to you, Father, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this for the remembrance of me. So he invites us to remember, to bring into the present the truth and the mercy about who he is and who we are and can be and to receive the righteousness that he has to cover the unrighteousness that we have been and to do that as we eat the bread and drink the cup. And so, Father, as we remember Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, we ask you to sanctify these gifts of bread and juice with your Holy Spirit and to sanctify us as well that we may be truly meet Jesus in the sacrament. May offer ourselves to him and to you for your gospel purpose and service. And at the last day, Bring us with all your holy people into the joy of being citizens of heaven. And so in the name of this church, I invite you to come to receive this gift of his presence, his power to live the new life centered on him. And as you come, why don't you take the time from when the team begins to lead us in worship and you're waiting to your turn to come forward. Why don't you confess the ways that you live for self? or for others without him. Ask his forgiveness for that. Dedicate yourself to the improving life of living for him and for him alone, day by day, step by step, and receiving his assistance as together we commit ourselves to him.
even as he's committed himself to us in dying and rising for us. And if you need some assistance in doing this, uh, remember you can check in with the prayer ministers after the service as we give ourselves to God right now.